Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Mark. This is E3, and this is the second week or the second sin of the seven deadly sins. Now, full disclosure, uh, when Eric uh, uh, brought this series and wanted to, wanted to do this, this is really not how I think. Uh, and let me, let me explain that. Uh, I, I really try and, and believe to my, to my core that, that the more we focus on Jesus, the less these things are a problem. The, 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 the more that we are focused on the Word of God and His instruction to our life, the more that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it leaves no room for these sins to take place. Having said that, there is a reason that these are titled the seven deadly sins and why I was, you know, like thought this was a good idea to do this series is that these are the seven things that historically from the beginning of man to today that have taken people down and have emotionally killed them or spiritually killed them or even physically killed them all of these different things, and, and understanding that we need to look at those and see the signs. When uh, we were talking about this and we came uh, up with the, or identified the verse uh, about just running the race and stripping off everything that, that holds you back, I was kind of thinking about adventure races that are all, you know, really uh, hip right now, and people like doing them like the Spartan run and the, you know, the gladiator run. And anybody, has anybody done any of these? Few, few. Well, basically uh, what you do is, uh, and they've, they've increasingly as time gone on, got more like brutal. It used to be like you'd run through some tires or go over a wall. Now they advertise like you'll, you'll crawl through a electrified mud pit you know, with, with rattlesnakes and, and piranha and all this. So, I mean, it's this increasing thing. I was thinking about it. As we run the spiritual race, as we run with purpose in every step, as we strip off everything that'll hold us back, that really these seven things are like, you know, the electrified bog, you know, that, that can take us out, that can stop us from attaining the prize of of uh, the unfettered presence of, of our Lord and Savior and robs us of the rich and abundant life that, that God, uh, or that Jesus came to give us. So as we're going through this, you know, I, I, I don't want us to like think like, oh, we're spending seven weeks focusing on sin because I think that would be detrimental. We are focusing on Jesus. But in these seven weeks where we are going through these is, 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 you know what, these are warning signs. And each one of these that, that they have a tendency in our own lives right now or in the future or in somebody that we deeply care about, one of these sins could take them out, could destroy their relationship with God, with you, uh, and, and damage them. So these are things that we should really be paying attention to, at least to be able to see the warning signs. Now, today, we're going to be talking about greed. And, you know, greed is, a, is an interesting thing. Actually, uh, I, I, I found an illustration. Uh, Harper's Magazine came out with uh, this, this kind of this spoof page where, where on the top it said, 
the, the world's greatest uh, authority on greed speaks out. And then the next uh, picture is Santa Claus. Okay, and in front of Santa Claus are all of these letters, and they all begin with, Dear Santa, I want. Dear Santa, I want. And this is what Santa uh, says at, at the end. Santa looks up over his glasses and comments this. Do you remember, listen now, do you remember all the things you told me you wanted as a child? Well, your list may have changed, but it hasn't got any shorter, right? I mean, it's like, boom, and it's true, right? You know, I think about all the stuff. You know, I remember getting the Sears catalog and circling everything, you know, putting stars and double stars. You know, I want this, I want that. I don't remember any of those things, but I can guarantee you my wants are no shorter than they were when I was a little kid. We want. You know, I, 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 uh, I remember, if you remember Finding Nemo, that, that great scene, you know, that, that maybe uh, the greatest illustration of greed is the, the seagull scene, right? And the ski, seagulls, instead of squawking, what were they saying? Mine, 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 mine. That's us. We're a bunch of seagulls. You know, we, we disguise it. We're more dignified than that, right? We're not just flying rats at the beach, <laughs> right? Well, at least we hide it, especially here, you know, at, at church, we can hide that a little bit better. And the, the interesting thing about greed, you know, you, you look at these and, and our culture is systematically checking these things off and saying, mm, let's rethink this. Maybe these are not actually a sin. I stumbled across a TED Talk where, where they had different people talking about the seven deadly sins and saying, oh, maybe they're healthy. Maybe these are healthy. I kid you not. And making a case for the seven deadly sins. I mean, somebody making a case for greed, making a case for, for lust, making it, and, and, and finally, I gotta tell you, I finally stopped listening to it. I was like, this is insane, all right? You know, it's just, I mean, this is absolutely insane. But the reality is that, that you know, once upon a time in culture, in our Judeo-Christian uh, culture, that Nobody wanted to be seen as greedy, right? Like that, that was a real negative thing. I mean, it's the focus of, of uh, the Christmas story, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, he was greedy. And, and it was a really despicable characteristic of Ebenezer. And, and, and it wasn't until he had his transformation and he stopped being greedy, he started being generous. And it has just pulled us so far back. I remember the first time that I was exposed to kind of this, this idea that greed is good. And you know where I'm going with this, right? In the 80s, uh, there was a movie called Wall Street. And there was a character in Wall Street called Gordon Gecko. Such a cool name, right? I'm Gordon Gecko. 
You sound like a rich, greedy person, right? You know, Gordon get it. And, and he goes up and he stands up in front of, of uh, a bunch of potential investors. And what does he say? Greed is good. Greed is good. I remember watching that as a, as a young man and, and said, yes, greed is good. It fed into what I wanted to believe. It was something that was like, you know what, if I can accumulate enough, if I can get enough, then you know what, I remember telling my mom this. I said, as a young man, before I was a follower of Christ, I said, you know what, she's like, where do, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, you know what, I want to accumulate so much wealth and so much power that I don't have to care what anybody thinks. I mean, that's how dark my heart was, okay? And I've repented of that. But a lot of this is like we look at these, you know, the Gordon Geckos and, and, and other, you know, actually real characters and we say, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if I had so much wealth and I had so much power that, that basically I could tell anybody to go to H-E double hockey sticks, right? But the reality is that's a false idol, I think the, the, uh, the, the, the last kind of exposure was to this idea that greed is no longer considered necessarily bad or not a sin was uh, one of my students, I'm an adjunct professor at FSU, I teach one class, uh, it's called social entrepreneurship, where basically helping students create a business plan, uh, a market solution to a social problem. And we were going around and, and, and saying, like, so why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this? Everybody's, you know, like there's this one gal in my class. She wants to uh, uh, start this uh, swim school because one of her uh, uh, friends in college drowned. And, and she's saying that foreign students a lot of times don't have access to this and they don't really have the swim skills, but everybody's going to the beach. And so she, wanted to, she wants to start this enterprise, which is, you know, most of them are, you know, really noble, you know, with water or, or children or something like this. Well, this one guy, uh, you're going around and he tells us about his social enterprise. I'm like, so, so what, what, is, uh, what is the driving factor for you? You will not believe what he said. He said, greed. He said, I just want to be filthy rich. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't really care about the social cause. I just want, I, I was like, <laughs> you know, but I appreciate his honesty and, and, and it gives us a, a, a place to talk. And, and, and honestly, I think it, it allows me to, to speak in and say, hey, you know what? You can be wealthy and, and, and have a very fulfilling life. You can create a product that helps people and do all these things and, and not in FSU's context, but you know, in our context, God wants to greatly bless you. God wants you to be successful, not to be a, a reservoir, but a conduit of his love and, and, and grace to a lost and hurting world. So it's not a problem with, with being wealthy. The problem here is, is your motivation. And hopefully throughout the semester, I will be able to have a conversation with this young man and just saying, look, I've been down this path and you know what the end of accumulating wealth is? Nothing. 
You know, I think about, I think it was Rockefeller uh, was asked one time when he was walking out of uh, a business meeting, a reporter asked him, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I think that, that that's the big lie. You know, we think, and it's a lie that, you know, if we, if we just have a little bit more, then it's going to be okay. Just a little bit more, a little bit more. But what happens is if our motivation isn't correct, if our motivation is just to get a little bit more, then we will never be fulfilled. You know, somebody asked me, you know, why are we doing additional red-eye coffees? What, what's the motivation in there? And, and the motivation really is that I have seen that red-eye coffee in Midtown has done so much good. That one little coffee shop has brought a sense of place. It's been a Solomon's Porch in our, our, our own city that, that it's been able to literally help children walk and nurses be trained in Haiti and, and single mothers getting homes in, in, in Guatemala and a special needs school being funded in Uganda and, and all of these kinds of different things. And I believe that God can leverage that to do more. That God, we have been faithful with this and God is saying now, opening it up and saying, you know what? I have much bigger plans for this that you can use this little coffee shop in Tallahassee to bring glory to my name. In no way, in a, in a different way than the church can. And you know what? It's exciting and it is cool. And it's wonderful. And the motives are pure. And that's the problem is when we think about this and we think about, about greed, that that greed is this sneaky, destructive force, and it, and it preys on the most base levels in our soul. And the enemy is able to use lies to wiggle through and begin to corrupt us. So if you open up your Bibles to 1 King, just to let you know that the sermon clock does not start until I read out of the Bible. All that was bonus. So First Kings chapter 21, I just I want to share this story with you. And, and, and really how I want you to take this story is just to really just take it in as a story, as, as, as a narrative. And we're really not going to go and really unpack it. But it's just, there's a really interesting, honest thread through it. It shows you how greed can corrupt and greed could actually be deadly. Verse one, now there was a man named Naboth in Jezreel who owned a, vi a vineyard in Jezreel beside the a palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, I would like to buy it to use it as a vegetable garden. I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. So far, so good, right? You know, King Ahab sounds very reasonable, very generous. Hey, I want to grow vegetables. 
Vegetables are good. My mom told me to eat more vegetables. So, and you got a vineyard right here by my palace. It's convenient. It's awesome. Dude, I want it. I understand it's yours. But you know what? I am going to pay you more than it's worth. Or I am going to even uh, uh, give you a better vineyard. It, 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 it's, it's great. Actually, this is, this is noble. This is wonderful. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down by my ancestors. Now, in uh, Israel's uh, way of thinking, that, that this land was not for sale. It was connected deeply to Naboth's ancestors, and it was his inheritance. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, I'll just get a better vineyard, or I'll get some cash, or, or something like that. Uh, that no, this was a matter of family. I don't know if you have anything that is in your family that it cannot be, you would never sell it. Like there is not a chance. It is, it is so important. Um, you know, some things that come to mind in, in my family would be, you know, would be several things. Uh, uh, family Bible. Uh, my grandfather's Haggadah and his uh, uh, yarmulke, um, uh, you know, even just family albums. You know, if somebody's like, wow, your children are beautiful or, or you are a handsome young man, I'd like to, you know, you sell all this kind of stuff or whatever. It's like, you know, it is not for sale. This is precious to my family. There is not a price. There is not enough money to make me sell it. So this is where Naboth is coming from. He's like, no, 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 not selling, no matter what. So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall and refused to eat. What's going on here? You know, he is throwing a little bit of a tantrum, but I think that this is where sin starts to really kind of grow. And this is in isolation. When we have disappointment, when we have fear, when we have hurt and we choose to isolate us, the enemy thrives in isolation. Think about it this way. God is a relational God. We cannot understand God outside of relationship. And when we remove ourselves from relationship, this is the very definition of what the enemy is trying to do is isolate us. And once we are isolated, that our minds and our thoughts can, can run wild and our, our minds and our souls and our emotions become a fertile ground for the lies and deceit that Satan wants to put into our fertile minds and souls. So this is what happens. Jezebel, his wife comes in and says, what's the matter? What made you so upset that you're not eating? Well, I asked Naboth to sell me blah, 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 and he refused, right? <laughs> and then she says this, are you the king of Israel or not? Boom. Well, yes, I am. Right? I mean, what is she doing? She's insane. She's starting to feed into his pride, into his position, saying, you know what? You don't have to take this. 
You're not subject to the law. You're not subject to, the, to common decency. You are great. You are powerful. You can do what you want. And he's sitting there, and she says, look, I'll get you the vineyard. Just say the word. So he said yes, and she wrote letters in his name and sealed them and sent them to the elders and the other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, she commanded, listen to this, call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor. And then see two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Do you see what she's doing, how insidious this is? That she is saying, you know what? I've just propped my husband Ahab in this place of pride and prominence. And I'm placing him up here. And you know what? I'm going to use that same tactic and I'm going to take humble Naboth, who's a farmer, and I'm going to put him in a place of prominence. And what's God say about pride? Comes before the fall. And she's doing it with her husband, and she's doing it with Naboth. And she knows the law that all she has to do is get two witnesses to come up and lie about this man. And then they can take him out. And that's what exactly happened. That, that he was put to this place of prominence. Two men, two scoundrels, as she put it, uh, came and lied about him. And they dragged him out and they stoned him to death. What was Naboth's crime? Nothing. He didn't do anything wrong. He was minding his own business. He was trying to honor his family. He got stoned to death. When Jezebel heard the news, verse 15, she said to Ahab, you know the vineyard Naboth wouldn't sell you? Well, you can have it now, he dead. So Ahab immediately, immediately went down to the vineyard of Naboth to claim it. Tells you something about his heart, right? This idea of like, you know, oh, you know, oh yeah, you know, take care of it, take care of it. I, you know, well, it's his and everything, but this, his response here tells us a lot. There was no stutter step. There was no, oh, what about his family? What about his children? What about all of these things? What about his legacy? What did you do, woman? None of these things. He went immediately to claim what he wanted. He probably flew like a seagull going, mine, mine, mine right? <laughs> Verse 17, but the Lord said to Elijah, go down and meet King Ahab of Israel who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you've done this, Dogs will lick your blood at the very place where they lick the blood of Naboth. And then it's interesting his response to this. He's not like, chicka, what? 
I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. It was Je Jezebel. No, he says, so my enemy, you have found me. See, this greed had turned his heart so far against God that he views God as his enemy now. That he realizes how far he is found. And Elijah says, yes, I've become because you have sold yourself to what is evil in the Lord's sight. So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. And I think a lot of times that we think, you know, why would God do this? But here's the reality. There is a natural consequence to sin. And when we open the door to one of these deadly sins, and this is, was a hard lesson for me as a young man to learn, that my actions and my sin impacts everyone around me. You think, and this is one of the lies of the enemy, you think that you can sin and you can consult. It's like it's only hurting me. This is one of the greatest lies of the enemy. I'm only hurting myself. It's poppy, can I say this? <laughs> Cock, all right. I'm growing. Dan, Pastor Dan gave me the, the, the nod, so email him if that wasn't okay. All right, so, <laughs> so it's poppycock, right? That, that it's not true because, you know, again, our actions are not isolated. They impact everyone who's close to us, and there's concentric circles of our actions for good or bad resonate throughout all of eternity. So it really comes down to this, that, that we have this kind of this horrific story of, of just what was going on, right? And, and how greed took place in a man's heart and, and the enemy, Satan seized on it through the, you know, the voice of, of his trusted wife and Great pain and hurt and death resulted in it. So why does this matter? How does this, how do we guard ourselves against greed as, as fully devoted followers of Christ? So, you know, it's very, very hard. You know, how do we separate the difference between need and desire? Should we all just, you know, live on rice and beans and, you know, where last year's, you know, style or, or what? How do you, you know, just, you know, not buy anything new? How do, how do we protect ourselves, especially in a culture that embraces greed? How, how do we do that? You know, how do we even determine it? And the, the, reality, uh, the reality is it's very, very difficult. Um, the economist Jean-Baptiste Say said this, and this was hundreds of years ago. He said, demand always rises to meet supply. The more we have, the more we want. That was true hundreds of years ago and it's true today, right? I mean, it's just, the more we have, the more we want. Have you ever been to a buffet? A low country boil? You know, have you, you know, ever had a whole dessert tray put in front of you? You ever gone to Thanksgiving? Do you normally eat that way? No, it's just, it, Jean-Baptiste 
Um, he calls it the Say Law. That's his last name, Say. The Say's Law is, is that demand always rises to meet supply. The more we have, the more we want. You know, it's, I, before I moved here, I, I lived in California and I lived uh, at the beach in, in, a, in a little beach cottage, old beach cottage. And you know what's crazy about old homes? Anybody here live in a really old home? Like, what are the closets like? They're tiny. They're absolutely tiny. And one of our biggest complaints about our little house was there was nowhere to put our clothes. You know what we did? We expanded and built a closet. Actually, we built a couple of closets. But did we ever step back and say, you know what? You know, how did these people get by with these small closets? Because we could hardly fit our shoes in them. Well, you know, it made me start thinking about like when, you know, my grandma would talk about, about she had like two dresses, you know, growing up. She had her Sunday, or well, her for her, her Sabbath, she's Jewish, so her Sabbath dress and, and her work dress or her school dress, you know, that, that, you know, a lot of times I think about this, and, and it's true, like we've, we've grown, 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 and the bigger our closets are, the more full they get, Right? Does anybody like say, you know, have big empty spaces in their closets and just like, man, I wish I could fill this. You know, anybody's garage just like empty and you're like, man, I wish I had more stuff to put in there. No, we have quite the, there is a billion dollar industry called storage units that when our houses with our ginormous closets can no longer, and our garages can no longer hold all our stuff, we pay somebody to store our stuff that we will never, ever, 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 ever use. But we're all okay with it. We're like, eh, that's just the way life is. But is that the way Christian life is? Is this God's ideal for his followers, for his children? The philosopher Ludwig uh, uh, Furbach famously said, we've all heard what he said, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. What you desire, what you consume makes you. And I think one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves is as we're consuming, we think we are merely acquiring stuff. We think we're merely acquiring stuff, but the reality is that stuff is acquiring us. One of my favorite scenes in a movie, in one, uh, uh, in a movie, old movie called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You guys seen that? You remember Chief? Big, big guy, big Native American guy, and he didn't talk, and uh, Jack Nicholas uh, finally got him to talk, and, and just did, huh? Nicholson, sorry. The, not the golfer, but the actor. You guys, you don't come here for details. You come over elevated thought. So you know what I say. So every, everything I'm telling you is, is truthful, just not necessarily accurate, right? So, so deal with it. So, so 
he starts talking about his, his, his father. Chief was talking about his father and, and his alcoholism and said that every time he, he put his lips to the bottle and took a drink, he thought he was taking a drink of alcohol, but he didn't realize the alcohol was drinking, consuming him. And how many of us are being consumed by our stuff? Thomas Aquinas said this, greed is self-delusion, deceiving us that we can attain self-sufficiency. You know, you think about King Ahab. Oh, I can have my own, um, I can have my own vegetable garden and then I will be self-sufficient. I will not need to rely on anybody for, for uh, vegetables. After all, I am the king. After all, it is, you know, by by my palace, you know, I mean, uh, you know, maybe there was laws on the, on the books about intimate domain and saying, you know what, it is better for me as the king to have this than you. And, and he's making this decision. The reality is that greed is a false god. It is misdirected worship. Even if you think about the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? Do you know? You'll have no other gods before me. That is what greed is, is, is taking... Christ off his rightful place in our lives on the throne and moving it and wanting self-sufficient. You know what the last uh, commandment is in the Ten Commandments? Do not envy or covet your neighbor's house. In the Ten Commandments, you got bookend this kind of, uh, this, this illusion or uh, uh, illusion to, to Greed. Let me finish with this real quick. I know that we're, we're running a little bit long. Jesus told this, this parable of the rich fool. He told this story. A, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and big, build bigger ones. They don't have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I will sit back and say to myself, my friend, I don't know who does that. My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool who store up earthly wealth but, has, but does not have a relationship with God. Be very clear, there is nothing wrong with affluency. There's God, there, through the Bible, God has blessed people greatly with material wealth. So, but there's a huge difference between that being your God and seeing that material wealth and being able to say, you know what? God has entrusted this to me to proclaim the gospel. God has entrusted these resources to me to be able to make the world a better place, to nudge people closer to the heart and mind of God. James Ogilvy says this, and it's so brilliant. He said, greed turns love into lust, leisure into sloth, hunger into gluttony, honor into pride, righteous indignation into anger, and adoration into 
envy. That is how dangerous greed is. Greed is not good. Greed will kill you. Finally, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, 34, just a little bit after that parable. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. There is one antidote for greed, and that is generosity. Every time that we are generous, we are striking a death blow to the heart of greed. Generosity is the antithesis of greed. I believe that this is why God says, give me the first portions of your, your earnings. And even though that's a small amount in proportion of what, of what you have, it is making a public declaration that, you know what, I will not bow down to the God of greed. That I will have liberty in Christ. That I will be a generous person because I serve a generous God who gave his only son so I would not have to perish, but I would have eternal life. That every time that we do that, every time that we give in an act of generosity, not out of compulsion, but out of generosity that we are connecting ourselves with the most beautiful virtue of God, and that is that we serve a generous God. And this may be the, one of the most radical, countercultural things that the church does. That a group of people come together and say, you know what? We are going to be generous with what God has entrusted to us with the express purpose of making, maturing, and mobilizing fully devoted followers of Christ. You guys pray with me.